even though there's times where the weather is bad and you're working your butt off, there's a there's that sense of pride that still comes into play. And I really value that because I know that whether there was turbulence, whatever it may be, all those people on those planes don't know that I'm the guy behind the scenes making this happen. Even though it's a team effort, it's nice knowing that someone today got from origin to destination in one piece. People go to work every single day. There's the nine to fivers, the work from homers, the doers, the dreamers, the list goes on. But what does it take day in and day out to succeed in these careers? This is the Experience A Day in the Life podcast. We're your hosts, Krista Bow and Matt Poe. The concept is simple. Each episode, we take you through a day in the life of a different job, hour by hour. We call this an adiddle, spelled A-D-I-T-L, which stands for a day in the life. We have a really interesting job to cover today. We are going to travel all the way down to the busiest airport in the world in Georgia because we're going to experience a day in the life of Derek Vento. Derek is an air traffic controller out of Atlanta Traycon. And Traycon, they handle the departing and arriving flights coming in and out of the airport. And if you can imagine, he's up in that tower, that tower that you see if you take an airplane or go watch an airport. Yeah. <laughs> Derek's also the host of the Traffic Pattern podcast, where he interviews a bunch of people in different sectors of the aviation space. So definitely go check that out. We'll talk about that in this episode. And he's also working towards getting his private pilot's license. So he's truly an aviation nerd. <laughs> so strap in because we're going to jump right in right now. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is your captain speaking. We'll be starting our flight in just a few minutes. Welcome aboard. It's 6 a.m. and we're in the Atlanta area. Derek is just waking up and he's immediately checking the weather. He uses an app called ForeFlight and does this every morning to get a clear picture of what conditions the pilots will be experiencing. Basically, you check the weather to determine if you need a jacket or an umbrella. Derek checks the weather to determine how intense his upcoming work day is going to be. He got up, got ready, and was out of the door by 6.30 a.m. for a 40-minute commute, hitting up Starbucks along the way for his signature order, caramel macchiato iced coffee. If he doesn't have his coffee, he gets pretty irritable, like most people. He arrived at work at 7.15, ready to tackle the day ahead. So let's meet Derek and learn more about what he does and how he got to where he is today. My name is Derek Vento. I'm a air traffic controller at Atlanta Traycon in Peachtree City, Georgia. We serve the world's busiest airport, Atlanta Hartsfield where we work about 3,600 airplanes a day and about 136 airplanes an hour. I've been doing it for about, ooh, let's say, five years now, and here I am. Now nice. you're living the life? I'm living the life, man. I love it, man. It's fun. It's like never a dull moment, and it's kind of funny because every time I go to work, I actually wonder, I wonder if we're going to be busy today. I don't know why I asked myself that question because, of course, we always are, but <laughs> we have a blast. We have a blast. Great. So the first thing I wanted to ask was about how the federal government plays a role in regulating what you guys do. 
Because I know that there is a lot of regulation around that, right? Right. So essentially, the government pretty much controls the airspace, just to keep things simple. I think the best way to put it would be our goal as federal employees is to serve the flying public and provide a safe and expeditious service to those that are in the airspace. So there's a thing called demand and capacity. Obviously, if everybody could fly at the same time, we would definitely do that. But when weather comes into play, for example, the federal government pretty much says, hey, listen, there are so many planes that want to fly, let's say, into one airport, but the system can't accommodate all those airplanes at one time. So we have things like what we call traffic management initiatives, TMIs. Mm -hmm. So 5,000 airplanes want to fly into one airport, but the system realizes it can't accommodate 5,000 airplanes in one airport, let's say, within two hours. So it spits out what they call traffic management initiatives. And it dictates, hey, this airplane may take off at this time, and that's how we sequence airplanes into the air traffic control system. So just as a whole, like I said, they're responsible, obviously, for most controlled airports and uncontrolled airports to an extent. There are so many specifics we would get into. We'd be here for for almost (laughs) hours talking about that. (laughs) But just to keep things simple, they're responsible for the airspace. Most of the controlled airports are major airports, you know, the Charlottes, the Atlantas, you know, the LAs and things like that, the Miamis. And our goal as controllers is to essentially provide that service, whether we're in a tower or in a terminal radar approach control facility, which pretty much means we're sitting at a radar scope. And our job is to look at a radar scope and we're responsible for the airplanes, let's say, at 12,000 feet. And our goal is to separate them and provide that good service. So now it's 7.15 and Derek is getting into his groove. He grabbed his headset and reviewed the pre-weather brief. Again, knowing the weather conditions helps paint a picture of what the pilots will be experiencing in the sky and therefore helps inform Derek on how to mitigate risk. Safety is the number one concern. The weather conditions can be described by two terms, VMC, which means gorgeous weather, and IMC, which means... It's raining. There's snow, clouds, overcast. We're all miserable. It's just the way it is. Mm. The reason being is typically we can't accommodate as many airplanes to the airport. The other part about it, too, is pilots can't see each other out the window. So they're relying on the instruments in the cockpit. When it's overcast, you're you're in the clouds and you can't see. I can tell you what altitude you're at from looking at my radar scope, but that doesn't help you because you're kind of like flying blind now. You don't know what's happening. So the weather gives us a clear picture of the day. It's very important that we know what we're walking into before we even get into work and what we are walking into when we get there. So for example, I'm a nerd, so I'm a little bit different about it. I like using ForeFlight. So I'll use ForeFlight. I'll open up the app and I go like, okay, today it's going to be gusty out of the Northwest. Visibility is going to be really, really good. A few clouds at 5,000 feet. Shouldn't be a terrible day. And I translate that to if I'm working the final and I'm working airplanes on the final, getting them sequenced and lined up a couple miles apart, I know that I'm going to have a strong tailwind out of the northwest, which means that my base leg traffic is going to be fast. I'm using crazy terms right now, I know. But what I'm talking about is that my downwind and base, I may have to be a little bit more conservative on when I'm turning an airplane either too soon or too late because now they're going to have a tailwind, which means that if there's wind pushing the airplane at the tail and I go to turn the airplane – they're going to have a wide turn. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. If that it's coming sense. from the northeast, I know that if I turn them too soon, they may pinch on an airplane that's already established on the final. I don't want to turn too early because I don't want them to get too close. 
because the wind's going to be out of the northeast, which means it's going to push them. So a southbound heading like a heading of a 180 may look more like a 200 because it's all about where the wind is coming from. Mm. So I'm thinking about generic small little things. Yeah, I didn't think and you got how, this granular with it. Well, like it it's is. like physics. Yeah, yeah, it's like a little bit different. Yeah. Wow. So like knowing that is important. So it's not like I just go like, oh, okay, like I'm just going to walk into work today and just be like, oh, cool. It's cloudy. <laughs> it's cloudy today. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes what we call the wind aloft, the wind at altitude mm-hmm. can change the way you make work, that you, that you may work the airplanes. I might slow to 210 knots a little bit sooner than I'd mm-hmm. do yesterday. And yesterday I'm like, it's kind of funny. I'll, I'll just say this real quick. The weather is so big on how you're working the airplanes because you may walk in on Tuesday and you're like, I'm crushing it. You walk in Wednesday morning and you're like, what is happening? I did this yesterday. Something's not working. You have to adjust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're doing the same thing, providing the same service. You may just do a couple of things a little bit different. Derek's passion for aviation began young. His mother was a flight attendant and his dad's a helicopter pilot. And when it came time to seriously think about his career path, aviation was a natural choice. Fast forward, fast forward. His first helicopter ride was in 2006, and from there, fell in love. A few years later, out of Morristown, New Jersey, Derek took his first airplane ride in a small diamond two-seater plane. Mind you, this happened when Derek was in high school, who sometimes literally sat in the back of class, headphones on, listening to liveatc.net. The whole concept behind it is for people all around the world to be able to listen to air traffic controllers control airplanes. Sounds absolutely terrible. Sounds like the dumbest idea. People love it. I'm sure. So I'm listening to it. The teacher goes, Derek? Uh, yeah. What are you doing? Hold on. <laughs> what? <laughs> Put the headphones back in, right? Excuse me. Listening to live ATC. <laughs> Uh, we've got work to do, right? I'm like, okay, no big deal. My buddies to my right and left look at me. They go, listen to live ATC? I say, yeah. They said, let me hear that. I pull the headphones out. I play it out loud. Listening to Philly departure. Pretty much the departure control, working all the airplanes, leaving Philly, climbing out north and south. And the guy next to me goes, that's my dad. I'm like, wait, what? He goes, yeah. So the guy next to me, his name is Chris Buckley. His dad, Brian Buckley, is a controller in Philadelphia. He goes, I'll hook you up with my dad. I'm like, cool, sounds good. He gives me the phone number and all the information, blase, blase. Come to find out another kid I'm, I'm in class with, Steve Brown. His dad is an air traffic controller at Philly. And one other girl I knew at the time, her name is Michaela. Her dad got me the internship at Philadelphia uh, Tracon and Tower, hanging out with the guys and girls in the tower and the Tracon, like learning about the radar, learning about the aerospace, everything. And no joke, I was in the tower. It was like one of my last few days I was there. And I was getting ready to walk downstairs, and this guy looks at me. He goes, hey, kid. I said, yeah. He goes, you're going to be doing this job someday. I was like, okay. (laughs) To me and you guys, never thought I would be. You know, people, like, they tell, like, a story, and it sounds like, oh, that's so cool. I was kind of like, sure, whatever, right? I didn't want to go to college. I just didn't want to go to school. And I went to school for like two semesters and I hated it. I couldn't, just couldn't stand it. I knew it wasn't for me. And in 2014, the FAA came out and said, hey, we're hiring, you know, thousands of air traffic controllers. Please apply if you're not over the age of 31 and you've got three years of work experience. Well, let's go back. I worked at Buffalo Wild Wings and I hated that job. (laughs) (laughs) And sure enough, I had the internship experience and I thought that was so amazing seeing that. 
and I put my name in the hat and I was one of 28,000 people that applied and was one of 2,800 that got selected. And oh my God, we had a blast out there. Three months of fun, but you know, all expenses paid, just a great experience that kind of humbles you at the same time. I mean, you're out there in a class with 18 people, they pay for everything, but you know, you're going through that training every single day. The simulator labs, there's a lot of book work. And I noticed though, People that did very well out there were the ones that sort of kind of had some experience prior to kind of going in. It didn't mean that you were a pilot or a previous air traffic controller, but you had some knowledge about maybe airplanes or kind of the process and maybe just around that environment. But they put you in an environment where you can learn and it's on-the-job training. And that's what this career is all about really for the most part is being flexible and on-the-job training and having someone stand behind you, plug in and say, you're doing it wrong. And that's hard for someone that doesn't take criticism. Mm. Someone that doesn't like being told what to do, oh man, this job isn't for you then. And even though everyone can kind of do it a little bit differently in air traffic control, there's pretty much a way to typically do it. And to see people walk out of there and just not make it was just tough, you know, because everyone like left their jobs. And I'm sure, out, yeah, like, you take a risk what, on this. Yeah. What are you going to say? Hey, I'll be back in three months just in case I don't pass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, we got we to replace you. So if I don't make it, Hey, Rainy, can I have my job back? It's yeah. almost like, I don't, we don't have a spot for you. What do, right. what do you do? Yeah. Buffalo Wild Wings again? <laughs> I'm not going back. <laughs> it's since changed, but the ATC placing process when Derek was there went a little like this. You chose a region that you wanted to be in, east, central, or west, and based on your performance on the exam, you'd get placed at an airport in your selected region. So it kind of puts that motivation into your brain because they give it to you the week prior to finals. So you're looking at this like, I better perform because I really want to maybe go there. The reason being is because even though there's 18 in the class, 10 are east, let's say five are central and three are west. I'm really competing with only 10 people. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So then I look at the eastern facilities and I go like, ooh, okay, Jacksonville's on there, Montgomery, Alabama, and I see a couple others. Let's say like Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Well, I don't want to go to Birmingham, Alabama, so I better perform. They look at that critical list of facilities and go, this one needs bodies, this one needs bodies, this one needs bodies. Sure enough, I think I placed five out of eight of us in the eastern facilities because a couple people just didn't pass. And when I say I was in fifth place, I don't mean like I did terrible. It was like the person that was in fourth like had point two more points than I did because they count academics, they count everything. So the person that was in first place scored like a total of 89.21. I'm like an 88.06. Wow. So we're all, it's very competitive. So we knew that ahead going in. So then when you're like getting ready to pretty much knock us out the park, you're like, all right, I got to go in there and be humble and do do this because I don't want to go here. I want to maybe go here. Sure enough, didn't get Jacksonville, Florida. I got Columbia, South Carolina. But I knew at that time it was going to be a building facility. It was a great place to learn, and I was so thankful for that. But my first shift, I was nervous. It's 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 a lot of book work to start off with, like a lot of airspace map study, frequencies, things like that. But when you first sit down and hit the floor or you go up to the tower, the first airplane I ever talked to was a U.S. Airways CRJ or whatever it was back then, and – they were going to Philadelphia. So he calls for a taxi, and I'm like, yeah, I'm like, uh, Air Wisconsin, 742 Alpha, Columbia Ground, runway 11, taxi via Alpha. First transmission ever. So the one thing I liked about Columbia the most, and this was pretty cool, you got to develop a relationship with the local pilots. So you're talking to some guy on frequency, and then 30 minutes later, you're like, yeah, man, I get off work in 30 minutes. I'll, I'll see you at, you know, wherever. 
Derek enjoyed his time at Columbia Airport, but wanted the opportunity to advance his career, so he jumped at the chance to work at Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport, the busiest airport in the world. Back to the day. It's about 8.30 a.m. and Derek is sitting at the radar scope, which is basically a map of everything coming in and out of their designated airspace. Before he can truly get started, he's asking a pilot for his P-I-R-E-P, or a pilot report on the weather conditions from the sky. Real big emphasis on the weather, if you couldn't tell. So just as a passenger who goes on a plane, we're also concerned about the weather, right? Like we want our pilots to be able to see what's going on. What does it, what type of weather does it take for a flight to be canceled? Oh, we could talk about that forever. I mean, <laughs> you know, I joke about the airlines and, and the way they treat passengers sometimes. You know, I, I'm a huge fan of, of, of our flying um subsidiaries and in airlines that, that definitely transport us you know i'm not really biased to one they all do a great job but it's funny seeing the, the the gripes that people have from like a flying public standpoint and i'm like if they only knew right so what i always say is that our goal in atc is to obviously be safe right and accommodate as many airplanes as we can but sometimes things just happen where delays occur again the national airspace system there's a difference between demand and capacity and capacity so let's say, for example, there is a delay going into LaGuardia. Really, really windy, and maybe let's say there's like a thunderstorm overhead. It's been just looming around, right? American Airlines or Delta or Spirit pretty much say, hey, these flights are delayed. Or we get to a point where you're like, okay, this is looking like it's going to get canceled. So they may tell you, okay, your flight's canceled for ATC delays. What they're maybe not telling you is that because the system obviously is trying to accommodate airplanes – your flight time gets pushed back mm. naturally. Mm -hmm. You were supposed to depart at four. Now it's looking like 10. 10 o'clock comes around. And what happens is, is your airline realizes that crew that's supposed to fly you is going to time out. They've got to have crew rest. So what happens is, is this. They say, for example, ATC delay flights canceled. What they probably don't have is another crew to fly that airplane. And they're not going to bring someone in because they have to pay them what? Yeah, overtime. right. Yeah. Things of like that sort. And they probably can't get a crew to come in that, that, that late at night. It's not going to happen sometimes. So they'll say ATC delay flights cancel, so they don't have to put you up in a hotel. Because if they cancel it for them, let's say mechanical or something of that sort, what do they got to do? Vouchers, accommodate. Does that make sense? Yeah. That does make sense. So, huh. so there's like a little bit of a little system. A little, a little bit of a regulation <laughs> in there. Sounds you, like you guys are the scapegoats. Exactly. Yeah. And that's <laughs> why we as controllers always talk about that. Like, that's not right. That's not right. We didn't do anything. Right. We're trying to uh, we're trying to play catch up, right? Mm -hmm. right? And that's why like the next day you have like this airplane that's like full. Everyone's trying to ride standby and they're trying to like get people swapped in, like different crews moved around because, for example, that crew, let's say you're supposed to fly from Atlanta to LaGuardia. That's like I canceled. Technically, that crew is supposed to be in LaGuardia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're not that next morning. So what happens is they got to get a crew oh, to be at like LaGuardia. A reaction. So it's, it's like a – there okay. we go. Yeah. Holy yep. moly. Yeah, it's like a whole – Yes. Mm. It's a mess. It's 10 a.m. and Derek checks in with the operations manager. Derek will be the first to tell you that he has the utmost respect for his managers and the entire team for that matter. From my own experience, I can tell you that if you find yourself in a work environment that you really vibe in, don't take that for granted. 
With his headset on and coffee beside him, Derek and his co-workers are ready. Let's set the scene. On any given shift, Derek is in the radar room with 30 other air traffic controllers. The goal? To ensure the flying public's safety. The logistics? Each air traffic controller is responsible for chunks of airspace. The vibe? <laughs> Let's just say it's never a dull moment. You might be talking to the airplanes by yourself, but you're never really alone. But you always have complete control, you know. So it's your sector. You're responsible for your part of your airspace. Essentially, is we're in a room together, and your goal, let's say, for example, is to receive the airplanes at twelve and 13,000 feet. You kind of, like, slow them down, descend them, get them in a line, and you ship them to Krista, and then Krista gets them. And then your goal is, like, turn them eastbound, descend, whatever it may be. And then you're like, all right, here they come to me. And, like, I get them, and, like, I'm the last guy. Mm-hmm. So, so like, it's all just kind of going like I kind pretty of much. Yeah, pretty bit, much. Yeah. Everyone has like their own little altitudes. Like you might own four to 6,000 feet. I own seven to 12,000 feet. You own nine to 12, whatever, whatever. You may work on the other side of the room, but you're never really too far away. I've got this little thing that we call uh, an RDVS. Essentially, I can pretty much click a button and I can talk to you immediately. So that's what we call a drop line. So I can immediately like get right in your ear and I'm like, Hey, I got a question for it or blase blase. Can I do this? Mm-hmm. So Communication is pretty much the most important aspect of our job. So you you went on and you talked a little bit about it just now, but like the chunks of airspace that you guys are mm-hmm. – is it based on altitude or is yeah. it like you, you guys have different – Yeah, pretty of- much. You know, I mean like uh, we own a certain amount of airspace around Atlanta and our goal is to – separate them from departing aircraft, other arriving aircraft. I mean, there's always an, well, it's kind of funny. So in air travel, we always say there's always an airplane somewhere. You know, we call it a big open sky, but it's typically some airplanes going to be there. But our goal is to either keep airplanes separated by a thousand feet or three miles. So there's some exceptions into that rule as well, depending on if the airplane's IFR or VFR. But typically like on a regular basis, let's say commercial airliners, things like that, either separated three miles laterally at the same altitude or any distance but a thousand feet vertically. Got it. The only time that rule really kind of like breaks itself up is if I say, "Hey, you're not report that traffic in sight," and they're like, "Yeah, we got the we got the traffic in sight," and they're responsible for the separation. So the pilot physically is looking out the window and goes, "There's Delta. Okay, we're gonna follow them." Blase, blase. So like, you don't know this, but when you're flying in that plane at fourteen thousand feet, either I'm keeping you separated, or obviously the pilots see the airplane ahead and they're obviously maintaining their own separation. Because we also can see the speeds of the airplane. Like a pilot, it would be so hard for that plane, that pilot on the plane to go, I wonder what speed that guy's doing. Like you can't tell if he's doing 250 or doing 180, 180 knots. So we're never going to let anyone like run over everyone else. You know, we're always going to like kind of still be in control in a sense, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting when you see how the national airspace airspace system comes in together as a whole. And we take airplanes from all areas of the country and we get them into this little small pocket. Like this little, small, like 50, 100-mile piece of airspace that we own, and we all, like, bring them together. Wow. That's all they do. Yeah. 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 Like they come in at, like, 15,000 feet doing 410 mile an hour, and our goal is what we call is we're, like, pretty much the off-ramps into the parking garage. Mm-hmm. So our goal is, like, 15,000 feet, come in fast, 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 slow descend. And our goal is to get them, like, lined up three miles apart, three miles apart, three miles apart, three miles apart, and get them to see each other and get them lined up like rockets again. After taking a 30-minute break, it's now 12.30 and Derek's working on the satellite sector where he encountered a potential emergency. A pilot indicated that they didn't want to climb to a higher altitude because they stressed the engine. Uh Uh-oh. 
So um, takes off out of this airport, he flies southbound in a twin-engine airplane. So that's a nice thing. It's got two engines, right? So God forbid he loses one, got a backup, right? But again, that doesn't that's mean like, things that are okay. okay. Right. Yeah, so twin-engine, two engines. But it's almost like, hey, listen, um, the airplane is supposed to work with two. So if the engine's not working left or right, we need to go ahead and fix this yeah, issue. It's like a kidney. <laughs> so, you know, the airplane's at 4,000 feet. I told the airplane to climb to 5,000 feet. And he didn't want to climb. And you have to understand, like, even as someone that's training to become a pilot, pilots love altitude for that specific reason. The more altitude you have, you can make an airport. You know, we call making an airport as in, like, you're able to get to a point of gliding, gliding, gliding. And then you're like, you know, you've made the airport. No matter what happens at this point in time, I know I can get there and get down. So the, the goal always that we talk about in aviation is to, can you make the airport? Can you make it? Okay, yeah, yeah. So like, can you have sufficient altitude where like, okay, pretty much you've made it. I can pretty much get down now. I'm good. Because you're, you're trying to pretty much conserve your altitude for as long as possible. So it's what we call a glide lift ratio. So for example, in the Cessna I fly, the best speed to glide at is about 62, 64 knots. So if I can glide at 62 knots, I'm pretty much conserving my altitude as best as I can. If I'm faster than that, that means I'm obviously descending too fast. If I'm slower than that, it means, well, I could potentially get ready for a stall. I don't want to stall the airplane. I want to kind of get that nose back down to a point where there's still sufficient air coming over the wings. So the whole point of this is the pilot doesn't want to come to five, and that was kind of odd. He just goes, hey, we'll stay at 4,000 for just a little bit longer. I'm like, no problem, maintain 4,000. Great. Doesn't really throw me off. Not a big deal, but still, again, doesn't want to take the climb. A couple minutes later, climb and maintain 9,000. And Apollo comes on the frequency and says, we'll just go to five. It's weird. Again, pilots like altitude. 9,000 is the altitude you're requesting, and you're going to Florida. So, like, 9,000 is a pretty comfortable altitude for this airplane. It's not a big deal, but doesn't want to come to nine. Weird. Sure enough, I say, come and maintain 9,000. He goes, approach, we're just going to make 5,000 as our final. And I'm thinking, okay. Uh, maintain 5,000, I'll show it as a final. And I ask him, I'm like, hey, quick question for you. Like, why don't you want nine? We're having some trouble with the left engine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yep. So in air traffic, I'll tell you one thing. One of two things happens when it comes to emergencies. Either we can declare one for them or they declare an emergency verbally and say we're declaring an emergency. And then everybody in the building knows and obviously we get people involved, things like that. The one thing I'll say is that if this goes back to the whole like aviation personalities and like ego thing where the pilot won't tell you that because they yeah. just think like, well, if I don't want to tell them emergency that would either take up resources or but it's like, no, you're having a problem. Keep me in the loop. Yep. So as soon as he told me that, I said, Roger, turn left hitting 090. There's an airport right there. So what I realize is if he loses a left engine, no big deal. There's an airport he can get to within a couple miles. Like I'm, I'm, I'm almost thinking to myself, again, excuse my French, but why take my shit and throw it on another controller that's going to take this hand off in the next 10 miles? Why also have him pass an airport? God forbid something happens, he can hang out right here. Mm-hmm. And that was my first thing I did. I just told him, I said, hey, listen, I said, uh, are, you, are you losing it? Yeah. You hear that? Uh, when I hear like that, it's, <laughs> it's kind of like a half yes, but pretty much yeah. Yes. <laughs> cool, no big deal. So luckily didn't wind up losing it, but I almost would treat that airplane the same way as I would a single engine because if he loses it, it's like he's right here. Mm-hmm. Because 
you know, these things get reviewed, you know, for quality assurance and things like that, QA, right? So they don't want us to look bad. I don't want to look bad. Yeah, of course. And have this airplane, like, continue on to Florida. Oh, you knew that was happening. And it doesn't mean that I have to do that. But when I communicated that to him, he was cool. He was, yeah, no problem. And he, and he, yeah, sure, that, that works for us. Almost like now he's like, oh, okay, so he's okay I'm with cool it. Now that. I'm yeah. cool with it now. It's like that assurance. It's yeah. like, yeah. dude, like, just talk to me, man. Like, yeah. that would have been cool if he would have been like, think about this, though. But remember, like, this this doesn't, like, happen within two minutes. So I'm telling you the story within three, but this has played out for how long you think now? Yeah. Like, 20 minutes because he was back there, and I said, come in at five. He goes, no, we'll stay at, we'll stay at four. Mm-hmm. So that, it was happening back there, like, 20 minutes ago, 20 miles oh. ago. But we didn't figure it out till 20 minutes later. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. this issue could have been solved back here, and I could have said, do you want to return to the airport? Yep. Instead, now we've passed two, three, four, five airports, and it's like because I finally decided to ask a question or he'll reveal to me, hey, we don't want to come in on because we don't want to stress the engine now. Well, it's like, oh, okay. So <laughs> this was with the end? Right. Yeah. So this was occurring a while ago. Mm-hmm. But because we finally use context clues and realize what's going on, it's almost like I'm just getting to the issue now. So as you just heard, working with pilots in this situation is a delicate dance. There are, however, scenarios where Derek, as the air traffic controller, advises a pilot to do one thing, and for whatever reason, the pilot does the opposite. Everyone's goal is to maintain professionalism. That's the whole part. So there are pilots, I think, out there where in certain cases, we may sort of have a friendly chatter back and forth on the frequency for a couple of transmissions, but we have to understand that people can be listening to us, whether it's people from the flying public, someone obviously else on frequency. You don't want to put yourself in a position as a controller where someone could say, hey, on this date and time, this controller was unprofessional. They're Mm -hmm. calling the facility and then your boss is talking to you saying, hey, man, you can't be doing stuff like that. And we know better. So even though we have type A personalities for the most part and we like to be the controller, we also have to understand that there's a pilot up there that has the ability to make sound decisions and they have what we call final authority, as in pilot and command, what we call PIC. If, it's, if there's an unsafe situation, that pilot pretty much obviously has the sole authority of that airplane. We're not up there with them to take whatever action they may need. It doesn't mean that we've done something wrong. It just means that at that moment, as a pilot up there, you know what's happening, mm-hmm. and I may not for whatever reason, and you're going to do what you need to do. The difference in that is when you get a pilot that, for example, may want to push the limits, and it never gets to a point where I've ever had a, a pilot, you know, in my five years of only doing this, put me in a bad spot. But I think that's where we take the human element of this and we say, how can we be humans and communicate my part without being argumentative or confrontational? Mm-hmm. So if a pilot says, for example, um, yeah, we see that weather up there, we're going to go ahead and continue on. I may just be like, okay, well, without you know me saying my name is Derek Vento and I'm an air traffic controller, it may just be, hey, sir, um, the weather ahead doesn't look too good. Can we consider any other options? Like maybe just landing somewhere else right now, maybe just waiting for the storm to pass. So we try to like just not be so confrontational and like get into like an argument on frequency. That's not cool. We don't do that. It's more like, can we be human beings and just talk professionally? and sort of mitigate the issue without putting more risk into the national airspace system. Got it. So just to kind of, from my understanding, you guys are like guides in yeah, a sense. exactly. But at the end of the day, they're calling the shots. 
To or, an extent, to okay. an extent. I mean, I'm talking about when safety. can you override their decision? Well, it's it's not really an override thing. I think um, it, that would be kind of like far fetched. What we try to do from the bigger standpoint here is to never put pilots in a position where they feel like what we're doing is unsafe. They trust us, and we trust them. The only time you're really going to see a situation where, let's say, a pilot may not like something is if maybe something has happened up there that we weren't expecting, and they say, hey, approach, we're turning away from this this target now. A lot of times we, we may be providing a service. There could be a flock of birds out there. We don't know. And the pilot goes, hey, we just saw a flock of birds, you know, one o'clock and a half mile. We're, we're turning left immediately. What am I going to tell them? No. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Do what you need to do. It's now 1.30 and Derek's working the final sector, which means he's taking the lined up planes and sequencing them onto the runway for a safe landing. The final controller sometimes is under pressure because you might get what we call a heavy push, like a big push. So typically there's always airplane landing at Hartsfield, right? So you might get a push though where like the international push comes at a certain time and you're getting like all the heavy jets coming over from like, you know, Asia and Europe and stuff. So like around, let's say... Either early morning or late in the afternoon, late at night, there's always like a couple different pushes. So there's times you're sitting there, you're just kind of like, eh, you know, two six Ryan flying two fives. And there's times you're like, tell us one one heading one eight zero SP one eight zero. Then a fourteen twenty one. It's like, oh shit, we're busy. You know, yeah. so it's like, <laughs> and it's fun though because you're actually working your ass off and you're making things happen. I like that a lot. But there's times you can kind of like, you know, we never lollygag, but there's times we can kind of just take it easy, run what we call conservative spacing, kind of just couple airplanes every few minutes, no big deal. And there's times where, like, you're like. Time flies. Mm-hmm. And, and you're sitting time. there and you're like, wow, that was a fast 45 <laughs> minutes. Yeah, that was a big push. Or that yeah. was a long push. You know, yeah. this is our last push of the night. And it's nice when you get that camaraderie and you walk into work and you're like, let's get this. Or this is the last shift of the shift. Like, this mm-hmm. is like, this is going to be like what we call the last hit of the night. You're like, last hit of the night. Let's go in there and crush this. And we do it, you know, and we do it. We walk away. We're like. All right, man. See y'all later. Be good, man. See you tomorrow. Hey, see you at seven, you know, or I'll see you tonight. You know, we might go out and get a couple of drinks after yeah. that or something like that. It. And we can kind of talk about work every now and then. Sometimes we don't talk about work. We're like, dude, I don't even want to talk about work. I don't want to think about work. You know what? I'm actually calling out tomorrow, you know? Yes, <laughs> you know? Yes, I'm yes. playing hooky. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding, Ed. <laughs> you know, so things like that. I also want to ask, obviously, you know, so much about aviation. What is your experience flying? When you fly on an aircraft, like tell us about your flight coming here. I look at flying a little bit different. I think because I know what's going on. And in a weird way, I'll say this too. I'm probably actually a little bit more nervous to fly. I bet. Because I know what happens behind the scenes. I totally. So I trust the system, but I know what happens too behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. But the great thing is that the flying public trusts us so much that they don't need to listen to what's happening. I mean – You have tools like Live ATC to listen, but I think the flying public just expects to get on the plane and just get there. But up front, you don't know this. There might have been a situation that got mitigated and you don't even know it. Mm -hmm. You don't realize the flaps probably didn't work for maybe 10 minutes or so. They got it fixed, but you didn't know that. It's not like that happens every single day. But that's the cool part about the professionals in aviation is that we make things happen. Mm -hmm. And we're trained very, very well. And I love that. But I think when I fly, like for example last night, one of the things I realize as I'm sitting there is how many people sometimes just don't enjoy flying. And I always recognize this because when we taxi out, 
The pilot comes on the PA. And they'll say something like last night, for example. Yeah, you know, ladies and gentlemen, welcome on board Delta Flight, uh, you know, 1886. Nonstop service to LaGuardia. When out of LaGuardia, let's see here. It's uh, 310 at 20, uh, 20, gusting to 25. I'm like, it's pretty gusty. And they'll say, oh, you know, and uh, you know, clear skies. And, uh, you know, it should be a pretty smooth ride for the most part. For the most part. I listen to every single thing. I take things in in a different manner. So I worked yesterday. I knew the wind. Oh, it was gusty. So I'm already telling myself on departure, my seatbelt's probably going to be a little bit tighter than usual because I expect us to get a little bit... How do I say this? I expect us to get rocked around a little bit. <laughs> Naturally. So I hear the wind at LaGuardia. We taxi out. The airplane takes off. Sure enough. Dude, you have to understand. These airplanes, okay, are very, very big. The pilots, when they're going down the runway have to steer that airplane to keep it on center line prior to liftoff. When you're in the rear of the airplane, and I'm in 35C and there's only 10 more rows behind me, you typically feel most of the movement in the rear of the airplane. So with the wind being gusty, what do you think we felt in the back? You feel like a little bit going on the runway. Like so, so they accelerate at 60 knots, 70 knots, 80 knots, 100 knots, and it's like the faster we go, you feel more of it. Sure enough, we rotate, and guess what? that left wing kind of like dips because that initial wind gust, they're trying to feel like, so, so like, hey, rotate. And they're pulling the airplane up and it's just kind of like a quick little dip and you're like, whoop. Yep. <laughs> but I'm expecting that. Yeah. Half the plane's losing their mind though. And some of people are like, whoop, you know? And I'm like, you can hear it. I would have been me. You hear that quick like, but, I, but I'm expecting yes, a little yes, bit of that. Yes. It's not like I'm like, okay, okay, hold on. It's almost like I'm kind of sitting there and I'm like, here we go, rotate. Because that, and you know it. And sure enough, the airplane kind of gets stabilized. And I expect we're going to climb out. And eventually, as we get higher in the altitudes, we'll catch some smooth air. But sure enough, again, we get closer to LaGuardia. And I remember the pilot said, Hey, wind 320, wind 310 at 25, gusting to 30. It's going to be a bumpy one. Now, you have to understand, I'll tell you something that's kind of funny. At LaGuardia, the runway is only 7,000 feet long. There's two runways. Typically, they'll land runway 2, 2, 3, 1, 1, 3 if they have to, and runway 4. So they'll land four different ways. But when the wind is out of the northwest, they land runway 3, 1. It's like right down the pipe. Okay? So the runway at LaGuardia is only 7,000 feet. Now, you have to understand, as a plane comes in to land, it doesn't mean that you get all 7,000 feet of runway. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You kind of come over the runway initially, yeah. what we call the threshold. Okay? So the runway starts and ends here. You don't like just touch the wheels down here and go to the end. Mm -hmm. The goal is to not go to the end, and the goal is to not land at the beginning because that's not where the airplane's supposed to be. There's touchdown zone markers. So your goal is to put the airplane down. Now, let me ask you a question. If you don't get the airplane down at LaGuardia, what's on the other end of the runway? There's a lot of water out there. So you can always typically expect a rough landing at LaGuardia. So we always mm -hmm. joke around in the back. We always say, like as controllers, if we're ever flying with our friends, we always say, it's either a bad landing or a Navy pilot because they land on carriers. Uh. So the goal is you have to get the airplane down and those brakes out. And sure enough, what happens? It's bumpy coming in. Uh. I expected that because it's windy and the airplane, it's a big, it's an Airbus 321 and they put that airplane down and it's spoilers are out, thrust reversers and braking and the whole airplane does this, leans forward. Yeah. Wow. I'm expecting that though. Because I know things from another perspective, whereas 
the passengers go, okay, kind of bumpy on takeoff, bumpy arrival. Oh my God, why did we land like that? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> does that make sense? No yes. clue. No clue. Yes, yes. No yes. clue. So when you meet pilots and talk to them, they'll tell you things like that. When you meet a controller, and it was pretty cool, at the end of the flight, I went to the front of the cockpit, and you know we're all kind of deplaning at this point in time. And I met the captain and I just said, hey, I said, my name is Dirk Vento, controller at Atlanta Tracon. I just want to say whoever was landing, by the way, you guys did a phenomenal job coming on the expressway through an approach. And his eyes lit up Aww. and he realized, wow, this is someone that knows exactly what we did just by looking out the window. It's 3.30 and Derek can breathe a big sigh of relief because, well, he's done for the day. If he couldn't tell, his job has pretty high stakes. So to end the day with nothing drastic happening is a win. On his way home, he grabbed some Chipotle for dinner and called his parents to talk about each other's days. His parents are in the industry, as we mentioned, so he cherishes the fact that they can swap perspectives and have meaningful conversations about aviation. He also achieves this with his podcast called The Traffic Pattern Podcast. He started it purely to share his passion for aviation with the world, and it's grown to be so much more than that. So I pretty much get to a point where I produce them weekly. I edit them myself and whatnot, and I decide to record ahead of time. So my big thing I always do for those listening about maybe thinking about making their own podcast is I call the whole process getting them in the can. There are so many times I might be on vacation or doing something and I'm thinking to myself, imagine if I didn't have a guest this week. I've already got 12 episodes pre-recorded ready to just mm-hmm. dish out. So I have them in the can. If I was searching for a guest every single week, oh, I'd be lost. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd be scrambling and it's tough. It's tough. So like the whole planning and process thing, it's kind of a little bit of a challenge, but it's fun for me. I really enjoy that. I'm actually training to get my private pilot's license right now too. So I feel like I never have time for anything anymore, but it's nice having that experience on the other side of the mic. I know what I'm asking someone to do from the controller standpoint. And it's cool because a lot of the times I talk to an airplane and I know who's flying it because I have a relationship with them or because I'm out in the community and people are like, oh, I, you know, you just came to our school and talked the other day for some event. And now I'm talking to them on the frequency. And, you know, a lot of times I'll get, is that Derek? And you're like, yeah, that's actually <laughs> me. What's going on, dude? So that guy from the podcast. Yeah, exactly. And I've had that before too, but it's cool that you have a relationship with people and you know what life is like on the other side of the mic. So, you know, for example, I just soloed two, three weeks ago. And that was a big step for me for my pilot's license because not everybody solos an airplane. I mean, being able to fly an airplane by yourself, you're up there at 2,300 feet. You're like, I actually had to land this thing, you know? <laughs> like my dad always jokes around. He's like, as long as you have as many landings as you do takeoffs, it's always a good day. And I'm like, well, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> you better. Makes sense, yeah. So we asked this question to most people we interview, but to wrap up, what would you say defines your best work and what does that best work bring? What value does that bring to the world? Even though there's times where the weather is bad and you're working your butt off, there's a there's that sense of pride that still comes into play. And I really value that because I know that whether there was turbulence, whatever it may be, all those people on those planes don't know that I'm the guy behind the scenes making this happen. Even though it's a team effort, it's nice knowing that someone today got from origin to destination in one piece. Like that's really rewarding when you see that Virgin Atlantic or Korean Air or American 767, whatever it may be, and they're flying into Atlanta and you're like, we made that happen. 
it's pretty crazy how I'm one person in the national airspace system. I take all the pilots into account and I take all the other air traffic controllers. Like, it's so weird how you go to work and you think like, okay, well, this is Atlanta. So like this airplane just popped off, popped on the scope and just kind of came in the airspace. Like, no, like this plane originated somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they talked to a controller at Philadelphia on the ground, local, departure, center, 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 center. I'm probably the 14th air traffic controller in two hours they've talked to. But I feel like I've accomplished something. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And at the end of the day, it's almost like if I'm working them in, I'm almost technically that last controller that I got to speak to them before they land. And they go, hey, man, that guy was pretty friendly. That's cool. Yeah. I always tell myself without going on a rant, if I can make the experience good for the people I'm working with and those that I'm serving, they'll come back. So you just experienced a day in the life of Derek Vento, an air traffic controller at Atlanta Airport. And if you want to follow along Derek's journey, you can follow him on Instagram. That's at Venti. And Venti is spelled V-E-N-N-N-T-I-I-I. Triple N, triple I. And if you want to follow along his podcast, his podcast name again is the Traffic Pattern Podcast. You can find the links and his Instagram handle and all of relevant resources at adiddle.jobs. That's A-D-I-T-L dot J-O-B-S. If you like this episode, please take some time to rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. Also, find us on Instagram at a couple with a podcast and DM us what job and career you want to experience next. Till next time.